You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com. Hey guys, this is Brad Carter with the Hunt the High Country podcast. This is episode five, where I sit down with my co-host, Billy Cannington, and our guest, Randy Johnson, and we talk about his lifetime of experience hunting sheep, mule deer, and lots of other things as he has had more experience than you, probably, hunting in some pretty cool, exotic, and wild places. He's got a wealth of information, so you want to stick around and listen to this one. Guys, this podcast is brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com. Uh, our website is there to help you become a more successful hunter. And we've recently added a new online store that's catered to the backcountry hunter. We carry everything from camp stoves to archery equipment to Hilleberg tents to Leica optics. So if you're in need of something this year, please consider us. And uh, you can find us at www.altitudeoutdoors.com. Guys, we're always looking for feedback and comments on our podcast. Please head over to iTunes and leave one for us there. Every month, we'll choose a random comment that's left on our iTunes page, and uh, they'll receive some free Altitude swag, one of our custom hats, or one of our new t-shirts that are going to hit the website in early April. So once again, thanks for listening, and without further ado, we'll jump in with myself, Billy Kennington, and Randy Johnson. Well, tonight we're here with Randy Johnson. I don't know if you know this, Randy, but you're one of my heroes, <laughs> especially hunting heroes. So it's really good to have you on the podcast. Randy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, and we'll go from there. Well, I appreciate the invitation, uh, Brad and Billy. I grew up in a small town in southern Utah by the name of Marysvale, only five or 600 people. I grew up chasing deer, looking at elk, playing a lot of athletics, and basically spent my lifetime here uh, being taught by my dad and grandpa, who were excellent hunters and outdoorsmen. Other than going to college, uh, I've been here most of my life. We know you're a big-time sheep hunter. What kind of got you into sheep hunting, Randy? Well, uh, back in the late 80s, I was spending a lot of time in desert country looking for big desert bucks. And one day in particular, I ran into some desert bighorns, and they really fascinated me, the kind of terrain that they lived in, uh, just spurred my interest. And after that, because I knew the desert country so well, I started getting phone calls from people to uh, help guide them, and then I drew a tag of my own, and my daughter drew a tag, and... I started on a quest to try and get my personal Grand Slam or full thrill of North American wild sheep. Just depends on what you want to call it. And I've been chasing sheep ever since, almost 30 years now. For those of you that don't know Randy, Randy shares a lot of inspirational stuff. He also is out quite a bit in the mountains. Uh, how, many time, how many days a year are you spending out there in the mountains, Randy? I don't know if I should answer that, Billy. My wife might get mad. Uh, <laughs> She gives me a lot of hall passes. I'm sure I spend a couple hundred days a year out either on the desert or on the mountain somewhere, guiding, hunting, helping other people. I, I'm at a lot. You say it all the time. I always look forward to your posts. 
when you come back because I don't know it just gets me that much more excited to get out there myself so with all those experiences Randy what is your what is some of your all-time favorite hunting experiences boy you know that's a tough question because when you you spend as many years as I have out there you have had a lot of hunting experiences and in fact I've had a, a a lot of friends and Hunting friends and other acquaintances encouraged me to get a book written on on my experiences, and I guess they finally have talked me into that. And so I'm actually starting that process in in writing all of those experiences down. And I've just really had some unique situations over for the past 30 years, but. I guess one of my highlights would have to be when I took my stone sheep in uh, in British Columbia back in 2001. I never dreamed that I would be able to complete a Grand Slam because it does take a lot of money and I'm not a person who, who has a, a checkbook that I can just open and write a check anytime I want to. So I've been very fortunate in drawing some hunts and then... Uh, my, my stone sheep hunt was a turnback hunt, and so I got it for a pretty good price, and I went up there, and we didn't see a sheep for 10 days, and so I, I was pretty darn worried, and it was tough backpack hunt, and it all came together on that 10th day, and I was able to get my stone sheep, and a couple of years after that, I finished my first Grand Slam, and since then, I've drawn a couple other sheep tags, and so I'm actually halfway toward the second slam. I don't know whether I'll ever complete that or not. I've got to draw a desert somewhere, and then stone sheep now are, are just so expensive. Whether I get that book or not, I don't know, but... I also remember a desert sheep hunt years ago on Utah's Descalani where I had a hunter from uh, West Virginia who was out here and he was really a physical specimen, a a football player, but he couldn't shoot very good. He missed three rams. We were in there for 14 days, the longest I've ever backpacked into into the country. We ran out of food once. I took him clear out and and got some food at the truck, and we went back in. And, and actually, on that 14th day, I had to get back to work, and I was taking him out, and I saw a ram come out on some slick rock and get a drink of water, and then it dropped off into a into a hole that I knew I couldn't get out of because I had been there before, and a storm was coming, so I just told the hunter, I'll take your backpack, I'll get down through the cliffs, I want you to go down there, and that ram will be down in there. He got down through the cliffs and went over a little rise, and <coughs> I heard the shot, he came back, and was jumping up and down. I knew he got his ram. When I got down there, what I didn't know is that he had shot a much bigger ram. <laughs> he had poked his head over into that, over the cliff, and there was two rams actually fighting, and they had their horns hooked together. Oh, wow. And I've never seen that since with, with two sheep that couldn't get undone. He shot the ram on the uphill side. When it dropped, it pulled the other live ram down with it. They started thrashing away around. The live ram got loose, and the hunter had his ram. That was quite an experience in itself. Yeah, that's quite the story. That's cool. That is very cool. (laughs) Luckily, that other ram got loose. You didn't have to have a rodeo up there, huh? I didn't know what I was going to do, but it got loose and up out of that whole thing, 14 sheep, five more rams. So oh, geez. it was it was really interesting. We had to rope off actually to get down in and get his ram, but it all turned out. Huh. I'm curious how many times you have to rope off to, to get down into some of these places. I, I've never had to repel, but for safety purposes, a lot of times I will rope off. 
to get down through some ledges, cliff, and then get back up again. And, and so in places like the Escalante, like the Parowitz, mostly in Utah, I carry a rope all the time. For those of us like me that have never hunted a sheep, what's some advice with preparing for a sheep hunt? You guys know how, how tough they are to draw a tag. It's just darn tough. But number one, I think if, if someone like you is really interested in hunting sheep, and you'll love it, Billy, you and Brad both, start putting in everywhere that you can afford it. You've got to get your, your bonus points in most situations filled up and start doing your research. Uh, look at the odds, and then if the sheep gods do smile on you, you draw a tag, a tag, depending on where the unit is. Again, research is so important, just like it is for all big game hunts. Start calling hunters that have hunted there, talk to guides and outfitters. Uh, um, a lot of guides and outfitters are just great people, and they'll try and help you out even if you decide to do it yourself. And then study sheep. Know what kind of animal they are, know their habits, and go on a hunt that you'll never forget. Because once you went on your first sheep hunt, you're infected with sheep fever, and you'll never get over it. I've got 18 points in Wyoming, so I think I'm five or six years out still on the unit I want to draw. But after that, I don't know what I'm going to do. You may draw it. You may surprise yourself. That'll be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited. I always told Brad that he he better take me with him or I'm not going to be a very happy camper, and I'm sure I'll be infected because I just just know that that's something I'll love to do. He better take you with him just to protect him from the bears. That's right. (laughs) One thing about Wyoming, you guys are blessed with plenty of grizzly bears and most of those sheep units. Oh, yeah. So you just... uh, wasn't the last year that you got a Wyoming ram? Actually, I drew a Wyoming ram. It's going on two years ago, and I was up in Brad's famous Absarokas. Actually, I was in Unit 1, just a really tough, tough unit. But, hey, we got in there for miles, and it was one of the funnest hunts I've ever been on. Uh, I was a little nervous about grizzly bears. All I deal with down here is rattlesnakes. And we did see plenty of grizz, but they didn't bother us. And I got an old warrior of a ram, and I would love to go back again. Maybe I'll get to go help Brad. <laughs> You're always invited, Randy, of course. Yeah, that was a beautiful ram that you took up here a couple years ago. Thank you. I just remember watching that video and just the emotion on your face after after you made that shot. It was pretty, it was pretty neat. Why don't you talk to us a little bit how you were feeling after that was all done. I'm not for sure if it was just elation or just happy to have it over. <laughs> Why don't you just talk about that for a minute? Well, any time you draw a sheep tag, I, I look at it, it's, it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I knew I, in all likelihood, I'll never get to go back to Wyoming again, and so I had been looking forward to that for years, and there's a lot of pressure on a sheep hunt especially when you're going into the in, in the country like that that I didn't know as well as I would have liked to have. I did a lot of research. We went in two, three days early, and that paid dividends for us because we were able to learn some of the country, and we actually spotted that ram two days before the opener. And a lot of times you can't pattern sheep, but this particular ram was just a timber rat. He would go into the timber most of, of the day, other than coming out early in the morning and the evening to feed, he would come out on the same ridge and would feed with another couple smaller rams. We really had to go through heck uh, to get in to where that ram was and had to crawl down through some ledges and cliffs. 
get where I could seam and bed it down. I couldn't get a good shot. I laid there in a cramped position for about 25 minutes, and I just finally decided I could squeeze the shot through an opening in the brush, and then I got it done. And yeah, there was a lot of emotion. You go from that adrenaline rush to when it's all done. The adrenaline leaves your body, and uh, you don't know whether to shed a few tears, take a deep breath. Uh, there's just no feeling like it. It was pretty cool, and you can definitely see it on your face. So, um, do you find that a lot with rams? Are they coming out, you know, really early morning and right before the dark, like mule deer and elk deer? A sheep are a funny animal. I they're just unpredictable. They're not like a big mule deer buck, but yeah, sheep will come out in the, in the morning. They're a little bit lazy. They might not get up right at the break of dawn, but then they'll get up and they'll feed for two or three hours. Generally, they'll start to bed down around 9, 9.30, just depending on the country you're in. And, and then they'll just lay around and chew the cud. They'll get up and stretch, bed back down again. They might feed a, a little bit, and then late in the afternoon, they'll get up and feed for two or three more hours. If the rut's on, then that changes their behavior completely because a ram is going to be on the move looking for years and he could move for miles if he finds a band to use and there's going to be some use coming into heat and he will will stay with them and so sometimes during the rut they can be easier to hunt if the ram is there with the use but if the ram isn't he's looking for use you better not plan on bedding them down because we're going to hmm. cover some country. How many of the hunts that you do in Utah are during the rut? There's pretty long seasons there, isn't it? Well, Utah, we have some interesting genetics because of the transplants. If you're talking of, of our basic Utah sheep, they traditionally will start rutting early in October and that'll go through November. But we've had some transplants, desert transplants in Utah from Arizona and Nevada, and so those sheep are used used to rutting in late July, hmm. and so we have sheep here. Depending on the unit, they'll start the rut in in August and go clear through November. So it just depends on the unit that you're hunting, Brad. We don't always get to hunt them during the peak of the rut, but. When you do that, it can be fun because when you hear a couple of big rams banging heads, <laughs> that's just like a gunshot. It helps classing for them, too, when you can hear them getting heads. Right. That makes sense. That's awesome. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Randy, going back to planning, um, if you just go through a couple of units and different things that we could look at for our listeners so that they could start researching. Well, if we're talking about Utah, Utah's a different state for sheep. It's one of the more difficult states, I would say, for desert sheep in, in North America because a unit like the Escalante, perhaps Parawip, etc., you're going to have to backpack in there. And any time you backpack hunt, it becomes a much tougher hunting experience. And so number one, if, if I'm a hunter and I'm looking at units and I've never been on a backpack hunt before or I'm not in the greatest shape physically, then I probably wouldn't look at an Escalante or Parowitz. Uh, there are even places on uh, design units which may be one of our better, our best units right now that you have to backpack in. So you just be careful on the units that you apply for. Look at your age, look at your physical condition, 
look at your experience, ask a lot of questions. We have some some units like the South San Rafael that you can drive on a lot of mining roads with ATVs, uh, the West Carowitz, locate the sheep and then, then go after them. There's not as much backpacking involved. You might be able to go back to a pretty nice base camp. But if you're looking for a true sheep hunting experience, and I'm talking to other sheep right now, uh, where you throw a backpack on and, and go for days in some really remote country, then you should look at an Escalante or perhaps an East Carolina where you can experience a true sheep hunting experience. So that's kind of where I'd want to go, honestly. Right. The harder the better. I'm... Just wait till you're 70 years old, I guess. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> then you might change your yeah. mind. About that time, I'll probably draw a tag. <laughs> <laughs> You, never you guys may surprise yourself. You may uh, draw a sheep tag uh, sooner than you expect. But again, besides Utah, I would be putting in, uh, especially in Arizona and Nevada, when we're talking desert sheep. Right. New Mexico also, if you confront that high application fee. Mm -hmm. So, Randy, let's say you've drawn the tag. Um, talk to us about the process that you feel that a hunter should go through after we've got the tag in our pocket. Again, it comes down to research, and I would guess if you've got the tag in your pocket that you've done some research, but it never ceases to amaze me. I'll get a call from a hunter, and they really didn't know what they had put in for or what they had drawn. They hadn't done the research, and all of a sudden, they realized that they've got to go on a backpack hunt somewhere, and they haven't prepared for that. But if you have drawn a tag and you've done uh, some preliminary research, then the fun really starts, Billy and, and Brad, because then you can start to make a lot of phone calls and talk to, again, hunters that have been on that unit, talk to people that may know it, ask questions such, what are the, what's the average base size of rams in that unit? How long is its horns? Do they have bigger bodies on the unit? Or are they smaller bodies? Because if, let's say you have a unit where you have rams that have relatively small bodies, then when you're trying to judge a ram, the horns on that ram may appear bigger than they really are. So there's just so many mitigating factors when it comes to judging sheep and, and knowing what you're looking at. It's quite a complicated process, uh, but a fun process, and there's just a multitude of questions uh, that you should be asking after you have that tag in your pocket. But again, if you really want a positive hunting experience, when you draw that tag, you better start getting in great physical shape because even on some of the easier units, you, you may have to hike into some terrain that in some instances people just aren't used to. What age class of rams are you typically looking for when you're hunting the Escalani and, or Zion, or does it depend on the unit a little bit? Well, it, again, it depends on the unit, but I would hope that we try to take rams that are seven years old I've had clients take rams on an Escalante as old as 13 years, but lions have really hurt that particular unit. And so now you go on that unit and you see a mature seven-year-old ram, you probably uh, should be shooting it. Where if you're on a Zion unit with the kind of Arizona genetics that's in there, if you can find a nine or a 10-year-old ram, then you're, you could be taking a Boone and Crockett ram. Uh -huh. Some genetics, however, various states with sheep, you can find a seven-year-old ram that's a Boone and Crockett ram, but you'd like to get a nine-year-old ram if you can. The guys up in British Columbia are hunting the Finhorn rams. Third guy, they better take a nine-year-old ram or older or uh, the outfitter's pretty upset with them. Uh -huh. 
It's not the same way with desert sheep on a lot of our. I'm sure it varies a lot, you know, state to state, and and of course species to species, and a lot of factors that play into management and different things for sure. Very, very true. So you alluded to it, Randy. Uh, let's talk about sheep shape. Is there any specific things that you recommend to your hunters to be in the best physical condition that they can be? When we're talking sheep shape, I may look at that a little differently than some people. When I use that phrase, sheep shape, I'm looking at not only physical conditioning, but mental conditioning. So if you have a tag and you have never, let's say, had a backpack on or been out there where you're sleeping on the ground and eating dehydrated food, then you need to get ready for that mentally. And so I'll tell a lot of my hunters, you know, during the summertime, I want you to go on some pretty tough backpack trips where you have to eat dehydrated food, where the water may not be very good. I mean, a lot of times on some of these backpack trips, your water sources are from potholes, and there might be some bugs and, <laughs> and pine needles floating on that water. It, it doesn't taste the best. You're going to have to treat it with either some chemicals or, you, or you're going to have to use a water filter on it. And so they need to get used to those kind of things mentally and physically and so I tell them to go hike in hot weather to try and acclimatize their body to the heat because a lot of times your sheep hunts are going to be in very hot weather and they just need to toughen up mentally and so that's the mental aspect of it. If we're talking physically, I've had hunters that uh, are gym rats and, and they go to CrossFit and they do a lot of lifting. That in itself isn't going to prepare you for a backpack sheep hunt because when you throw a backpack on, your legs still may be strong from the weights that you're lifting in the gym, but when you start moving differently through uneven terrain, through ledges, and that backpack shifting on your hips and on your glutes, it just wears your body out. I've, I've had some guys that are great crossfitters that it's just kicked their butts on a backpack sheep hunt. So, Besides going to the gym and doing a lot of lifting, I suggest you get out in the hills, throw a pack on and hike two or three days a week in uneven terrain with weights anywhere from 50 on up to 80 pounds to get yourself used to the hunt so that you can really enjoy it. And anymore, I don't spend as much time in the gym because I'm not as young as you two. <laughs> But I spend an awful lot of time out in the mountains, and I always have my backpack on, and I'm always hiking. So my body is used to the aches and pains of sleeping on the ground and carrying that backpack on my hips and wearing sore spots on your feet. And so when I talk about sheep shape, Billy, I talk about mental and physical. And just remember, on the physical, you've got to get out of the gym also. Get out in the mountains if you're really going to enjoy that hunt. Perfect. Uh, Brad and I have also, we've talked a lot about this. Um, you know, professionally, I'm an occupational therapist, so I do help people to come back into, you know, more functional type activity. But there is no really substitute for the mountain. Brad and I, when we first really, well, Brad's been backpack hunting, but I kind of had it easy and had horses for a while. But when I really decided to learn how to do it, that was one thing that, that I really learned that there's no substitute for the mountain. I'll tell you what, the, the times that we have prepared, um, usually, you know, starting about now until September, you know, we usually go out together two or three times a week 
and do those those weighted hikes just to, just to get our legs in shape everything else and and it really has made a difference when the fall comes it, it definitely does and you hit it on the head a few a few seconds ago when you said there's no substitute for getting out in the mountains and i guess someone who lives in the city that may be a little more difficult but still they can go put that pack on and find an area where they could they can hike for an hour an hour and a half two hours on on weekends and in the heat, et cetera, and trying to get their feet, their knees, their hips, the rest of the body ready for that hunt. Mm-hmm. I also think it helps with mental toughness because if you've known that you've packed that up and done elevation changes as well, you know, I mean, you're training your mind at the same time as you're putting yourself into some of those physical hardships. So that's really helped me as well. Well, the mental aspect of sheep hunting is, is every bit as important as the physical aspect. I truly believe that. No, that's great advice, Randy. We appreciate that. I mean, I think that's true with, with a lot of hunting. You know, you hunt big mule deer, and I know you've done that. And, you know, that's what tags we can get every year and we're more used to, and a lot of people are. But, you know, it's a mental game more than it is a physical game in, in a lot of instances, I think. And I'm sure that rolls right over into sheep hunting where you've got to manage your expectations, your your body aches when you want to turn around, and, and, and then know your body and what limits you have and how far you can go. And Exactly. I agree. So, Randy, I'm just curious, knowing you know some of the things that you post, are you doing most of your preparation and most of these trips solo? Or are you? Um, what would you say your percentage is with solo versus having somebody with you? In the early 90s, late 80s, when I was really learning a lot of the desert country. I was probably a little insane, Billy, because I went solo most of the time. It it was tough to get people who wanted to go with me. That's not always the smartest way to do it. It, It's dangerous. Sometimes you have no choice. I think going solo at times makes you a, a better hunter, a better guide, a better person because you have to learn how to handle the weather. You have to learn how to be careful in, in many situations. But nowadays, I, I really try to, to get friends to go with me. Uh, and that's tough for sometimes people get off work, etc. But there's a lot of individuals out there who love getting out on the mountain just as much as I do. And they love to do those kinds of things. And I have some really close friends and if they can't work it into their schedule they'll go with me in fact just next week for a long time i i've done an annual spring backpack trip into the escalante it's just one of the most unique places in north america because it's so isolated so rugged so beautiful so challenging both physically and mentally and i've got a young man flying out from west virginia just to go on that hike with me. He's a passionate archery hunter. Spent some time in Utah last year. He dropped 40 pounds getting in shape to go in there. And I believe I have six other people that are going to go on that hike, weather permitting. And it's going to be a killer, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like fun. All the more memorable when it's hard, right? <laughs> For sure. So Randy, the guys out there that want to do a DIY sheep hunt, why don't you go through, you know, just a typical day with what you do as a guide um, on a sheep hunt, you know, starting from the, the time you get up in the morning? Again, I would guess that if a person is doing it, do, do it yourself. They've done the research on the unit and they know somewhat about uh, something about sheep. They've probably tried to see as 
look at as many pictures as they could to learn the scoring system, etc. When I'm out there on the mountain hunting sheep, I'll be up an hour, two hours before daybreak, and I'll get into a prime glassing location. And with sheep, a prime glassing location is generally on one of the higher points that you can get on. Sheep always think danger is coming from below them. So if you can get above and blast into prime sheep country, right as that sun is coming up, then you've positioned yourself. You're placing the percentages in your favor to locate sheep. And blasting for sheep can take hours sometimes. But when that sun first comes up and it hits a white butt patch, that a lot of times what gives a sheep away, whether it's a Rocky Mountain sheep or a desert sheep. And so if you can see a white butt patch uh, moving with that sun glinting off it, that makes it easy. But a lot of times with your desert sheep, after they have bedded down and it's really hot, they'll bed behind boulders, they'll, they'll bed behind bushes, and you're just trying to pick every bit of terrain apart piece by piece to try and see uh, uh, the flicker of an ear with bugs that are bothering him. Those ears are always flickering. You might see that ear flicking, or you might see the sun glinting off a horn. You've just got to learn to be an expert glasser when it comes to sheep. And and in the middle of the act, of the day when the sheep are bedded down, I'll move around and try and get into different angles. But it's all about angles and movement with sheep. And once you've located that sheep, then you've got to find out how you can get in position to get a good shot and if you can retrieve the ram also. So those are just a couple of points. A lot of times during the middle of the day, you can take a little nap and then get ready for the afternoon. And the evening. Yeah, it sounds like fun. <laughs> totally want to go. Yeah. yeah. That's what we love. Do you just pretty much describe everything that we love about mule deer, but hunt sheep would be the next level, I think. <laughs> well, I know you guys love mule deer, and, and I, I still believe taking a giant mule deer is the toughest trophy in North America for a lot of reasons. Not that I don't love sheep hunting, but I do think a trophy mule deer is the toughest in North America to get. Well, Randy, let's switch gears. Uh, we know that you're involved with the Full Curl <coughs> Society. Uh, just wanted to talk about that society, you know, your your mission and vision that the Full Curl Society has and your involvement with that program. Well, when the Full Curl Society was organized, it was organized, I believe, in 2010 by uh, Mr. Don Pay, and Don just had a vision that a lot of a lot of hunters just don't have the financial means to hunt sheep a lot of the time. They've either got, they've got to get lucky enough to draw a tag or they may not ever get the opportunity. And so basically the mission of, of Full Curl is to bring a group of hunters who are passionate about sheep hunting together who are willing to work towards conservation efforts and putting sheep on the mountain but are also uh, willing to work towards helping individuals, for instance, like you and Brad, achieve your sheep hunting dream. So each year at the Western Hunting Expo, we have a uh, full curl social, generally on a Saturday. With full curl's efforts, we raise enough money to give away 10 to 11 free sheep hunting tags. So 
There are 10, 11 hunters who are going to draw a tag who don't have to pay the big money to go on that hunt other than perhaps drive to where the hunt is or, or pay for their airline ticket. So it's really an incredible opportunity for just normal people who dream about going sheep hunting to perhaps win one of those those tags. It's bringing a group of hunters together for a common cause. And that's what I, I like about it why I support it. So if people want more information on the Folk Curl Society, what is the best way to do that? You can find uh, the Folk Curl website on the Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife website, or if they have questions about it, I'm always willing to, to return emails or talk to them on the phone or return a text. That they're more than welcome to get in contact with me and I'll get them the information. But basically, if you go to that Folk Curl social, you pay $75, you get six tickets put in on those sheep hunts, and that's a bargain, and that's all, all you have to pay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but some of those tags are reserved for people like Billy and I that have never killed a sheep, right? Exactly. There are, are sheep hunts that are for hunters who have never went on a sheep hunt anywhere, and there are sheep hunts for those who have taken a couple of sheep. There are hunts where someone has never taken a stone sheep, but they need a stone mm -hmm. sheep hunt. So right. it's, it's organized to help everyone. Right. Wherever they are in their full curl, I guess, huh? That's, that's exactly right. So that's a good opportunity for those of you out there who have zero sheep or one or two or three. And it, it kind of, you, know, you have better odds because you're not putting in with everybody else. It's got, you know, somebody who's killed one sheep. You're just going against the guys who've who haven't for some of those tags. I've been to that social, I think, two times, and it's it's pretty cool watching those guys draw those hunts. I've, I've always wished my name was in the running, but uh, I'm, I haven't been that lucky yet. Well, when you draw, draw next year, Brad, I, I can just tell the sheepdogs are smiling down upon you. I want to make sure you jump up on the table and do a big Wyoming dance when you draw that tag. Oh, I will. That's what it's all about, uh, passion and excitement. So have you been involved with guiding some of those hunts, or are you kind of out of that? No, most of those hunts are your British Columbia-type hunts, Northwest Territories, the desert hunts, because they're so hard to get tags for a desert hunt. Right now, I believe those are Sonora uh, sheep tags that we're, getting, that we're giving away for that hunt. And so it's tough for a state like Utah to, to give a mm -hmm. uh, free desert sheep tag away to someone. So I know the desert sheep have been in Sonora, but I haven't been able to guide anyway, any of those, although one year I did donate my fee if someone drew the Utah tag, but they didn't do it. So. I was just curious. So that when Brad draws that tag and jumps up on the table, we'll be able to call you. <laughs> well, nope. well, you can call me, and if it's in British Columbia, I'll just crawl in his suitcase and go up there and help him. There you go. That sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> well, since we are uh, mule deer guys, we've got to talk about the Buck of Justice. Uh, I've been dying to hear about this story. Boy, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Buck of Justice. Uh, <laughs> where, where was that buck? Where did it live? You know, there's two bucks that everyone knows to... about. Buck of Justice is one and Popeye's the other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. Oh, the saga of the Buck of Justice started for me in the late 80s, actually, as I was exploring a lot of isolated 
country and I started to find some big shed antlers and I started to see some abnormally big bucks and I just kept dreaming that in this kind of country there was going to be a monster desert buck that was living there that was almost prehistoric in nature and it was June 15th of 1994 I, I remember the day I remember I was all alone and I was blasting into kind of a, a little sagebrush basin and there on the hillside were six monster bucks. I mean, bucks that you just don't see bucks like that. I mean, I thought I was dead within mule deer heaven or something, but <laughs> off to the side of these six bucks, and again, this is June 15th, you, you guys and I both know Bucks don't have their full goal probably till the end of July. Right. And these bucks were already what I would call monsters. But off to the side, there was this one buck, and I just couldn't believe how big it was. In the velvet, it just had tree trunks. It had horns going everywhere. And, it, and it's June 15th. And I wish I would have had a phone cam or a phone scope or whatever you're using out there and a cell phone back then, but we didn't have those things. And so I wasn't able to get a picture, but that's the first time I ever saw what later was the Buck of Justice. I didn't even know that at the time. I just knew it was a monster. And then my brother, Lane, and I became, I would say we became possessed with finding that buck and finding some of those other big bucks that I had seen. We started spending more time, and later on we figured out maybe where they were shedding those antlers, and I walked onto a shed antler off of the Buck of Justice, and I had never seen anything like it. It, it. it was more like an elk antler, for those who have seen this buck. And I picked it up, and I started screaming at Lane. He needed to come down and see what I had found, and on his way down uh, to find me, he ran into the matching side of that buck. Yeah. We both were just blown away by that and just started spending more and more time, uh, all the time that we could possibly spend. This wasn't easy country to even get in. Eventually, we ended up finding five sets off of that spot. Uh, the biggest set, they scored around 288. And if you've seen this Bucks Antlers, it really just has a true three-point frame when you look at it. But the bases, you know, are about eight and a half inches in diameter. And I think that particular year he had 17 uh, scorable points on the one side, 13 on the other. He is. He's, he's one in 10 million. He's just a prehistoric mule deer. And, and records are to be broken. Perhaps someday uh, there will be a, another buck with a similar configuration or that kind of mass, but he ruined me for mule deer because that's all I can, all I see anymore is that monstrous set of, of antlers. And, and so when I see a, a, a nice, what most people would think is a big buck anymore, I can't even get excited. So <laughs> that's just a real quick story. Uh, it took me like 18, 20 backpack trips before I could, I finally matched up all the sides, the sides of the antlers to that buck and uh, I believe it was in 2000 that a sheep hunter ran on to the last set of sheds and someone said someone had found another set of sheds off of that buck and I didn't believe him because I thought I had done my work and I drove up to the gentleman's place and sure enough it was another set of antlers off of that buck and 
he had actually seen a skeleton with the big pedicles and then walked about 50, 60 feet, and there two antlers were off of the box. And that box scored, I think, around 262. Uh, although it has digressed a little, that's still just a giant mule <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, deer. And, and so I went back in. I wanted to find where I had missed that at. When I finally did find that skeleton, I had been past that place 12 different times. I don't know how I missed that particular set of, of shed antlers off of it, but it, it meant so much to me that I packed that skeleton out my backpack. That was 10 years of my life that I had spent. I wouldn't trade those 10 years for anything, though, guys. Oh, yeah. That's what it's all about, really. Just the passion. And we haven't got 10 years of history with some of these deer, but they mean a lot to us. They really do. And, you know, you think about them and, you know, there's so much more than just, just a mount on the wall. It's all the experiences, everything that you've learned about yourself. Just the country that we're so lucky to be able to hunt. It's just, it's the whole thing. It's just amazing. Well, I appreciate you saying that so much because I preach exactly what you're saying. When I do a lot of my posts, I'm trying to teach our younger generation something. And what I'm really trying to teach is it's not about points and stores. Hunting is just what you said. It's about the overall experience, the physical challenges, the mental challenges, spending time with family, spending time with good friends like you and Brad are. There's just so much more to it. And that's why we love it. And our young hunters need to realize that it's much more than just stores and points. Yep. Wise words. I, I agree 100%. I couldn't agree mm. more myself. So, Randy, we got a little bit of time. Um, since you do spend so much time out there on the mountain, and I know you do quite a bit of gear reviews, I'm just curious about uh, some gear items in your pack that you feel like are essential and that you, you don't leave home without. You know, it's amazing that we survived in the old days wearing a pair of Levi's and... and <laughs> cotton sweatshirts, those kind of things. We've came a long ways. No doubt hunting is high-tech nowadays, but one of the items that I, I just love that never leaves my backpack is either a super down jacket or the synthetic super down jacket. They're both very compressible and light, and so they're easy to pack. They're really, really warm, and so I always have that jacket in my pack uh, for safety. Even if it's in the summer, uh, it'll break the chill of the early morning or that chill late at night. And then, of course, it's getting a thunderstorm in the summer. That can be a little challenging, too. But I almost always also have a very light pair of rain gear. Again, that's for safety. Always carry a couple of lighters or waterproof matches. Always have a little headlamp. Those are, are items that that never leave my pack. You know, I could go into different brands. I really like Kuyu because those guys are they're hunters and I've enjoyed working with them because they will actually listen to recommendations that other hunters make. But there's other good gear manufacturers out there. There's, there's some good stuff out there today and you can't go wrong with various brands. Yeah, we're lucky compared to what we were using 20 years ago. What's available on the market, it's pretty amazing. It, it really is from the kind of boots that you're wearing, every, everything else. Uh, I, I guess we're spoiled a little now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. You know, the biggest thing with 
performance gear like that, you know, like your super down jackets and clothing that has technology like that. I uh, run a little shop here and I think the biggest concern I have is people say, well, I can kill a big bull elk or I can kill a big deer without wearing that stuff. I say, well, yeah, sure you can, but you're more comfortable and your endurance is longer if you use it because it's lighter and it performs better and that's going to help you be more successful in the field. Exactly. I agree with you 100%, Brad. Mm. You hit it on the, net, on the head right there. Another thing is just the safety aspect. Some of these performance-type clothing, I mean, they're made from some of the best performance fabrics out there. So, you know, even if you're soaking wet, you know, there's times that safety becomes a big issue. Uh, I've even had times when, you know, we've been completely wet, throw it in the bottom of your sleeping bag, you know, it insulates you at night. And then, you know, by the time you get up next morning, most of the time they're dry. So it's pretty amazing. And, and I never thought that I could hunt in, you know, one set of clothes. You can wear them all season long and that they don't change. Well, I remember a, a time years and years ago where I just about froze to death on a late November mule deer hunt. And I was all alone and, and I swore after that encounter, that near-death experience, that I would get the best gear that I could possibly afford and I saved and nickel and dimed and from that point on, I always try to go with the, with the very best gear that I can find out there. And it has made a difference, and it is, it is a big safety factor. Especially when you're hunting extreme conditions, which seems like extreme animals like sheep and big mule deer bucks seem to take you into some nasty country and conditions. For sure. I'm also interested to what kind of glass you're running, Randy. For sheep hunting, you know... I'm a Swarovski fan. There's a lot of great optics out there. I, I never go into that country without my 15 by 56. Uh, the HD glass, always on a tripod. Very, very seldom do I go with glasses that are any smaller than that. Uh, I guess if you're hunting uh, Rockies in timbered country, etc., and, and you were spending a lot of time in the timber, you might get away with a with a pair of 10s, but I'll have that pair of 15 by 56s. I spot something I would want to take the course to look at, then I use a, a straight SDS 65 because I'm backpacking and I, I can't pack that extra weight, a big 80 millimeter lens. So I go with the 65 and it, it works well for me. I'm, I'm really intrigued by this new dual eyepiece that Swarovski has just came out with that'll actually fit on spotter. Mm -hmm. It's probably going to change the hunting industry again. <laughs> uh, just when you think you've got the gear that you need, the glasses you need, it changes. And that one I'm very interested in. I, I don't know, I guess it's about six pounds. Probably packable unless you're going for 100 miles. Maybe you would leave it behind. But I look forward to trying those out when you can get a pair. Yeah, those look pretty amazing. So, Randy, what's the best way for guys to follow you? I mean, you're a staff member at Altitude Outdoors, and you can check out a lot of the articles that you do there. I know you also write reviews at ireviewgear.com. What's the best way to kind of follow along or get in touch with you if somebody's got questions about sheep hunting or anything like that? They can email me at just randy at highdesertsheepguide.com, and I will get back to them. They can give me a Call on my cell phone, 435-590-8139. I am on Instagram. Uh, they can contact me on there if they want. 
Facebook. Anymore, I try to help as many people as I can. I, I believe that's just very, very important that I try to pay forward what training has given to me over these years. And so I really do try and help people out when they have questions. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Randy. You're a really a, a true person to look up to in the hunting industry, a lifetime of conservation. And I mean, obviously from talking with you, you can see how much you love sharing the sport, how much time you put into helping others is pretty remarkable. So thanks for that. And thanks for being with us tonight. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Again, like I said at the, the first, you know, Brad and I have had these conversations, but you really are one of our heroes and Hopefully someday we can be as influential to the sport as well as just as a good person as you are. I appreciate that. and Maybe one of these days before I wear out, we'll get to spend time on the mountain somewhere. <laughs> Let's Any, do it. Anytime, buddy. Thank you. Okay. okay. You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by altitudeoutdoors.com